Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be speaking with Dr. Moyer about his book, Number One Realist, Bernard Fall and Vietnamese Revolutionary Warfare, which is published by Hearst in 2021. It's already out in the UK and Europe, and it's coming out in the US on April 1st. So for American audiences, this is very much an interview giving you a sneak preview to the book. Um, And it's a fascinating discussion about a really interesting analyst of Vietnamese warfare and both what the French and the Americans struggled to deal with in the Vietnam War, um, as well as an understanding of kind of how how we understand revolutionary warfare and the way in which this really interesting analyst, Dr. Fall, um, was able to bring his own experiences from World War II to make some analytical extensions and leaps that were really influential in the understanding of what was going on in Vietnam. Um, So Dr. Moyer is going to to introduce us a bit to his book, um, and it's great to have you on the podcast today. Great, thanks. So to start off with, I was wondering if you could just introduce us a bit to sort of your research question or goal for the book and how you came to write it. Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Um, My goal in writing this book is to describe how Bernard Fall, perhaps the most knowledgeable of critics of French and U.S. foreign policy in Vietnam after World War II, developed his understanding of revolutionary warfare and how his life experiences contributed to this process. Um, My closely related goal is to show how his thought remains relevant to contemporary conflicts, as we certainly saw with regard to the United States' efforts in Afghanistan. Um, Scholars since the Vietnam War have long debated how the United States lost the Vietnam War And we hope we'll have a much stronger appreciation as to how the United States failed in Afghanistan. Ultimately, um, the United States was unable to provide the political rationale for its operations there in a sustainable way. Um, I realize some listeners may think that this book, Number One Realist, is a biography, but I would position it more as an intellectual history in many respects. If one really wants to understand the Vietnam War and the French Indochina War, then understanding how Vietnamese communist leaders through the Vietnam Front, for example, developed revolutionary warfare is key. Um, in the book, I primarily sought to tell the story of how Vietnamese revolutionary war, or warfare developed and how the French, the non-communist Vietnamese and Americans attempted to counter it. The scholarship of Bernard Fall provided the best and in my view, perhaps the most comprehensive vehicle with which to accomplish this. Uh, briefly, I, I would like to add that there are some personal dimensions as to how I came to this project and a professional dimension as well. Uh, personally, my dad, who was a Vietnam veteran, told me about Bernard Fall when I was in high school and was trying to make sense of the Vietnam War. This was critical for me because I was introduced to France's war with the Viet Minh early on. And so I was, I was forced to understand war in Vietnam as a long continuum, really from the end of World War II to France's war, and then through the United States' increased involvement after 1954 and with open conventional um, warfare in 1965. On a professional level, my interest in Fall's scholarship grew a deal, a great deal more as a result of my military service in Afghanistan. Uh, I was deployed to Nangarhar and Kunar provinces in 2010 and 2011 as a junior officer in the U.S. Army. And there I began to see the relevance of Fall's writings in a way that applied to warfare in Afghanistan. Uh, Fall once wrote in 1965 that in terms of the U.S. war in Vietnam, that the United States was faced with the choice between, quote, unattainable victory and unacceptable surrender. Uh, So in 2010 and 2011, when I was in Afghanistan, I began to see that the United States was was faced with a similar bad choice 
of unattainable victory, but also unacceptable surrender. This was made abundantly clear last year, I think, with the way the United States had to leave Afghanistan. You know, and so finally, as a practical matter, when I decided to pursue a PhD in history, I came to my study knowing that I wanted to write about Bernard Fall because there was no single objective study of his scholarship that existed. And so I saw this gap as considerable and one that I could fill. You know, finally, knowing that I could spend a great deal of time at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library in Boston, where Bernard Fall papers are held, was a key factor that helped making studying his work a realistic goal. Amazing. Um, and I think you it's great that you clarified the positioning of it, because I think it would not be fair to give this book, uh, call it purely a biography. It does a lot more than that. Um, and so to give us some idea of both Bernard Fall as a person, um, but also why he was why he was so important um, as a thinker, as a writer, as an academic. Can you help us understand, just as an introduction, why he was so clear sighted and unique in his thinking and understanding of Vietnam and the conflicts there? Yeah, that's well, that's a great question, and that was you know part of one of my goals to to demonstrate this, you know, so that Fall's work kind of served as a vehicle for this broader question about revolutionary warfare that I wanted to answer. And I think there was really a combination of factors in Fall's life, his education, and experiences that were each super unusual and converged into his scholarship. First, Fall personally understood guerrilla warfare as a result of his experiences in the French resistance and FFI and fighting against German forces in the French Alps during World War II. So he really understood what a guerrilla warfare or guerrilla, for example, in this case, was up against. Uh, previous to World War II, he also experienced life as an immigrant whose family left his home country of Austria after the Anschluss in 1938. So in the late stages of World War II, he had joined the French army, and then after the war, he became a research analyst for the War Crimes Commission in Nuremberg. And so finally, after that, Fall came to the United States as one of the first cohorts of Fulbright scholars, where he studied international relations at Syracuse University in New York, where he earned a master's in 1952, and then a PhD at the Maxwell School in 1955. Uh, this is just a brief overview of his scholarship but he incorporated both academic and practical real-world experience. But um, I think it's important to highlight because it provided a foundation for his scholarship on Indochina, to which he really focused his entire life after 1953. Um, in many respects, his work was unique because he understood, as I said, the motivations driving guerrilla warfare, and he understood French military tactics and political rationales for reoccupying Indochina, but he also understood U.S. foreign policy. Uh, it's also important to keep this in mind that he was a French citizen his entire life, but he lived and worked primarily in the United States. Uh, finally, professionally, Paul also had a profound understanding of communism in Europe, but also has as to how it developed in Asia. He was also able to travel to India, China at a time in 1953, when few journalists for the United States or in the United States uh, were able to accompany French troops, and he was able to see the French Indochina War over the course of that year in person. Um, he traveled to Vietnam over seven times between 1953 and 1966. And this enabled him to see a lot of changes through this critical period of Vietnamese history. Um, on a personal level, Fall had also what I believe was a photographic memory. Several individuals who knew him at the time, such as uh, another journalist named Francois Souli and Philip Divilliers, each commented on his ability to recall minutiae sets of dates, places, and individuals that really stood out to them. Uh, and this is something that I think um, helped, helped him in a great way at a time when there was no computers to store information. He was able to keep notes and really um, was meticulous in his note-taking and, and incorporated that into his writing. Uh, finally, the vast amount of scholarship he produced in a short, short, relatively short period of time, five books and 120 plus articles, 
really kind of substantiates the amount of um, prolific scholarship he produced. And um, I think finally he was able to identify when he made mistakes. And this is something that is really a helpful thing for scholars to be able to cultivate in themselves. Uh, and it helped him, I think, to help, it helped him avoid bias in some of some in some key ways that I think distinguished him. I think I like that you mentioned sort of he was able to notice when he made mistakes because something else that really came out was that his thinking continually evolved. It wasn't sort of set at one point and then he just repeated himself for 20 years. Especially given how much he wrote and published, you show in the book a very clear evolution. He went and did this research and then adapted it in this way and all that sorts of things. And one of the ways this came out most clearly seemed to be in how he thought about what insurgency was, what guerrilla warfare was, um, and that it wasn't just the military, it wasn't just the political, but how do these go together? And so he came up with these terms, revolutionary warfare, parallel hierarchies. And this was how he made sense of the social and political components of what was happening in Vietnam, but also, again, as you said, drawing on his own experience in World War II. So given how important these terms were throughout his scholarship, I was wondering if you could help us understand what did he mean by these terms, revolutionary warfare and parallel hierarchies? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And this is one of those questions that's kind of tricky because a lot of people, at least in the United States, tend to think of, uh, you know, 1776 and revolutionary warfare in that type of context. But, you know, the background that Fall had in World War II really formed, as I said, um, the context on which he was able to build sort of his ideas. Uh, most succinctly, Bernard Fall described revolutionary warfare as guerrilla methods combined with political warfare, where political action was the predominant factor. Uh, that's one of the most concise descriptions I can give. He was concerned at the time that American military forces um, were really focused primarily on guerrilla warfare, but in that, that was really most that they could accomplish. Political action was often too out of reach for Americans to provide. He, he provided a number of really great quotes, and one of them that I think described this in a precise way was, quote, an American Marine can fly a helicopter better than anyone else, but he simply cannot provide a Vietnamese farmer with an ideology to fight for end quote. Now, as to parallel hierarchies, a simple way to describe them is as a form of shadow government that are coordinated vertically and horizontally in a society. You know, in this case, by vertically, I mean a local revolutionary committee will seek to control local area, and then that committee will seek to connect its efforts with other local committees and to a regional revolutionary committee and so on and so forth. And so over time, this spreads in what, might, what one might think of as an ink blot course, counterinsurgents called this oil spot and tempted to re- reverse engineer this against Vietnamese revolutionary efforts. Uh, this is where I think in this case that I'm going to give you um, that fall was really atypical. He didn't look for just regular indicators to determine whether revolutionary warfare was unfolding um, or in action, but he looked at things like tax collection and delivery of social services, such as if, a government, um, if government teachers were assigned in an area or not. You know, he pointed out that a government will fight to the death to control taxation, you know, and if that power is lost to insurgents or to revolutionaries, it's safe to say that the government does not sufficiently control that area in question. So for Fall, determining who collects taxes was a far more accurate indicator of control than military-focused indicators. Um, To illustrate this a little bit more, there's a really, I think, illuminating story about when Fall first arrived in Indochina in 1953, he first went to the French command post and asked what areas the Vietnamese communists controlled. 
And there, the, the French briefing officer replied that the French controlled this area and that area and pointing was pointing to the map that they had. And then Fall went and spoke with some Vietnamese friends he knew and he asked them if this was accurate, to which, you know, his Vietnamese friends just laughed. So Fall went and he examined the local taxation records in several places which where French authorities claimed that they had control. And he determined that the French hadn't collected taxes in those areas for months. So then he went and conducted a similar analysis of government-appointed teachers in the same areas, which the government um, thought that they had control. And found, he fall found that almost none of those teachers are still in those areas that the French claimed were under their control. These types of indicators demonstrated to him that the entire area was communist-controlled. Uh, the most dangerous part for the French and his allies, in his mind, was that they were under the, under the illusion that they controlled those areas. And it's kind of like that saying... It's not what you know that is dangerous. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Um, so ultimately, I think, you know, Paul um, was looking at it in just a different way because he had such a strong social understanding of the society around him, as opposed to just looking to military figures or, you know, military uh, indicators and things of that nature. I really liked the sort of inkblot tax collector example in the book. And it really does kind of show the issue of it depends on what information you're looking at. Um, And so I was wondering if you could explain for us a little bit more kind of how his personal experience of doing this, of being a guerrilla fighter against the Nazis in Germany, um, allowed him to have this understanding. And particularly the piece I found the most compelling was not just him being a guerrilla fighter, but when those guerrilla troops then tried to also be part of the French military hierarchy and tried to kind of, the organization tried to have both options at the same time on the same side. Um, and that seemed to be a particular experience that taught him a lot about how Western militaries look at insurgencies and maybe helped him find some of these blind spots. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about his experience in that sense. Yeah, I think, you know, for instance, the question of collaboration is something that is a really important and difficult topic to discuss in a context of civil war or insurgency or counterinsurgency or revolutionary warfare. And this is something that he had direct experience with in World War II as a, as a guerrilla fighter in the French resistance. You know, if there was anything that really surprised me as I began digging into his, his scholarship more and more was the number of references he made to his experiences in his past during World War II. And for example, to his work at Nuremberg as a research analyst for the War Crimes Commission you know, I knew that he had firsthand experience in the French resistance, but I think I underestimated how powerfully this influenced how he understood the Vietnamese resistance to French coloni- colonialism and how his background shaped how he understood Vietnamese nationalism, communism. Um, as I mentioned earlier, he was a guerrilla fighter himself and then fighting against German forces um, in the French Alps. He knew that really he didn't have any other option but to fight if he was to survive. Uh, this is something that I don't think many Americans at the time had a parallel experience with say like in 1942. Um, on top of this, you know, as I mentioned, Fall was an Austrian-born Jew. His option as an immigrant to France did not really consist of much except to fight on until liberation. Uh, so I, I, as I studied this more and more, I really started to understand that Fall had a razor-edged understanding of social context. Um, now I would say in, in my professional judgment that his ability to read the society around him was a skill he developed, probably like many others, but especially as a foreigner, and that he continually refined and applied to his analytical studies of subsequent judge, uh, subsequent conflict and war. Um, also, it's important to point out that he lost his mother and father to Nazi persecution, and this certainly heightened uh, this skill, but also, I think, his humanitarian outlook. Uh, when he went to Nuremberg afterwards as a research analyst, um, 
I think this really contributed to his understanding and identifying with the plight of civilians in conflict, because this is what he was exactly studying. You know, this the Nuremberg was at Nuremberg was where the details of the Holocaust were revealed really in the full dimensions. Um, this was something that um, I think really stood out to him in a way that Americans really at the time maybe couldn't understand because he had lived through and lost his family as a result. And so I want to stay with that for a moment because um, I certainly was you know, reading bits of the book, knowing a little bit about this from my own study of civil wars. I sort of had heard his name, knew that he had fought as a guerrilla fighter, but had no idea that he was involved as a researcher for the Nuremberg trials and found that in your book, that's not a sideshow. That's really formative in his understanding of political economy, of the issue of collaborators. It seems to give him sort of a lens on U.S., and how the U.S. deals with international law that comes up later. So can you tell us a little bit more about what kind of impact his involvement in the Nuremberg trials had on his thinking that applied to Vietnam later on? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, just for listeners to kind of provide a bigger picture about the book, the um, first two chapters really look at these early stages of his life up through World War II, and then from chapter three on um, through eight, turns to his experiences in Indochina and his study of those wars. But um, I really wanted to go into detail of his life during World War II and then in the Nuremberg trials, which I did in chapters one and two, as I mentioned. And so um, I think Nuremberg was central to his thinking throughout the rest of his life because it was one, a key historical event in international law where war crimes were actually prosecuted. I mean, and he was like physically there, of course. So seeing these things in action for him, I think was powerful. Uh, you know, as a young Jew, um, you know, watching Nazi leadership being prosecuted must have been a powerful sense of retaliation in a way. Seeing justice being put in action firsthand um, made an indelible impression on him. So it, previous to though, Nuremberg, like things like the Kellogg-Briand Act and other precedents had made the idea of accountability in war um, a possibility. But Nuremberg was really a key event in actually making that type of accountability for war crimes a reality. Uh, it was Nuremberg was also a key event because of the importance of historical documents. In, ter in terms of evidence, this was brought forth. Um, evidence, for example, that was brought forth to prosecute Nor Nazi war criminals. And Fall was personally involved with conducting research on the Krupp Corporation. And he traveled to Essen and other factories throughout Germany um, to document the exploitation of slave labor, which included primarily women and children in the Krupp Corporation's factories. Uh, so to sum up, the direct exposure to international laws applied in the prosecution of war crimes was really central to how he later critiqued French and American warfare, such as indiscriminate aerial bombing through B-52 strikes during Operation Rolling Thunder, for example, but also um, with regard to the importance of having documentation to really prove one person's arguments. And so evidence for him was everything, and uh, he brought spades of it to his research, of course. So that was something that definitely came through from this experience, and you detail just how much research he did and how much evidence he collected about the German industrialist crop specifically and his exploitation during the war. But of course, then as you further detail, although Krupp does go to prison, he then gets released um, and released pretty quickly. Uh, so it doesn't look like a lot of punishment. Um, and certainly Fall didn't see it this way. So how did this release of a criminal that Fall had spent so much time and energy documenting in such detail, how did that influence Fall's perception of 
international law, institutions, legitimacy, and the U.S. role in all of that? Yeah, this was an area that was really kind of tough to go into because I, you know, I found one of the challenges in writing this book was to make sure that the reader had enough understanding of what the Nuremberg trials were because they were a complicated series of historical events. Um, There was the International Military Tribunal, and then there was the Nuremberg Military Tribunal, which, for example, um, was the cases against the industrialists, the Nazi lawyers, the Nazi um, medical industry, and so on and so forth. Uh, but I think that, you know, it's understandable that Fall viewed the United States, though, uh, as a primary factor in defeating the Axis in Nazi Germany. Like probably many Jews and people in Europe, the United States was really viewed as, um, you know, how, how can you say it? Um, I don't want to say like the United States was an exceptional country or anything like that. But, you know, it was really seen, I think, in a lot of ways as a savior of Europe, because without all the amount of production and the arsenal of liberty and democracy that, um, that Europeans depended on, it would have been hard to imagine Europe being able to survive um, the Nazi onslaught without the United States. But, you know, after spending literally two years researching and documenting the extent of the Holocaust and Nazi planning, um, you know, I think Fall really looked to the United States as being kind of the champion for liberty in the, in the world at that time. And so when John J. McCloy, who was the high commissioner for Germany at the time, provided amnesty for Alfred Krupp, and he released Krupp from Landsberg Prison after Krupp had been convicted of war crimes. You know, this really utterly disgusted Fall because it spent so much time documenting Krupp's use of slave labor and the Krupp Corporation's complicity with the Nazi regime, such as since the early 1930s, actually. Um, McCloy's motivation in releasing Krupp was that Krupp would assist in helping to restart the German armaments industry so that the West could begin competing with the Soviet Union in the early stages of the arms race in Europe. But, you know, and Fall understood this larger geopolitical competition of the early Cold War, but he simply couldn't understand how Alfred Krupp was personally the only person that could help, kind of say, relight German arms manufacturing. So Fall saw Krupp's release as a betrayal of the principles in shoring up international law and prosecuting war crimes. And this is something I think that um, kept in, he kept in mind, you know, as he saw what the United States began to do after 1965 in uh, Vietnam with regard to indiscriminate bombing and things of that nature. So, yeah, I want to stay on this idea of kind of the criticism, because as you've already mentioned, after he was a guerrilla fighter in World War II, after he was involved in the Nuremberg trials, he was one of the first Fulbright scholars in the U.S. and decided that he was going to pursue researching Indochina and Vietnam um, and then kind of threw himself into that. Um, And in addition to his academic publishing and building relationships within the academic community in the U.S., he also started to have a public profile on these issues And he wrote an article in 1958 called Will South Vietnam Be Next, which seemed to attract a lot of attention, um, particularly because of how he was criticizing the US. So can you tell us a little bit about what his critique was in that 1958 article and kind of what the reaction was? Yes, you know, this was a, a pivotal part in the book, um, I felt. You know, and I just want to provide a little bit of a broader context that could, if I could, in answering this question for the listener. Um, that first, you know, Fall wrote about five books, the most famous of which was Street Without Joy, but also another one called Hell in a Very Small Place, The Siege of Dien Bien Phu, which is a, considered a classic by many military historians. But he also wrote, as I mentioned, 120 articles and dozen, about a dozen longer form essays and studies. You know, in, in the book, I discuss, I could not discuss all these articles, of course, but 
you know, as the book developed, about seven or eight articles really stood out to me because of the content Fall provided in them, and also because of the reaction to them, as you mentioned. And um, this article, Will South Vietnam Be Next, was one of those critical articles you know, that I examined at great length. Um, the article was originally published in The Nation, and it focused on U.S. foreign assistance that was delivered through what was called the International Corporation Agency, the ICA. Uh, so I just want to provide this little background here. But this organization was within the U.S. State Department at the time, and it bungled foreign assistance in Vietnam so badly that when President Kennedy became president, that the ICA was discontinued and a new U.S. foreign assistance um, agency was set up called USAID. Um, this was established through the U.S. Foreign Assistance Act in 1961. So to back up, the problems with the ICA were multiple and false criticism, criticism centered on how U.S. assistance debilitated rather than aided the South Vietnamese government. So first, the ICA was an organization that had been modeled on the success of the Economic Cooperation Agency or Administration in Europe through the European Recovery Program, which was, of course, known as the Marshall Plan. And it was later succeeded by the Mutual Security Agency in 1953. But in 1955, the International Cooperation Administration was the sole main responsible agency in the State Department for foreign assistance. Um, in Vietnam, the ICA used a system of counterpart funding, which had been successful in Europe, but was not useful in Vietnam because it primarily depended on transactions of commercial goods instead of agricultural products that would help rebuild rice cultivation and other exportable goods from Vietnam. So in short, the use of counterpart funding and importing commercial goods to generate positive economic growth that succeeded in Europe after World War II couldn't simply be applied to an underdeveloped country such as Vietnam at the time. So if I could, I just wanted to provide a couple of specifics about counterpart funding. And Fall pointed out how, for example, 80% of U.S. assistance was in the form of commercial goods that were exported directly to South Vietnam, where they could be purchased with local currency, and then the proceeds from those funds would be deposited into counterpart funds. At, at that point, the South Vietnamese government would draw on those funds for projects that were coordinated with what was called the United States Overseas Mission, USAM. And then um, the remaining 20% of aid was given in cash to the Vietnamese government uh, directly for outright purchase of U.S. goods. You know, on top of this, it's crit critical to point out the United States supported the entire cost of the Vietnamese armed forces. This is in the late 50s. Um, this was also on top of nearly 80% of all South Vietnamese government expenditures and almost 90% of all imports into South Vietnam. It may be difficult to believe this, but the massive amount of aid was in keeping with what the United States had supplied to France during its operations before 1954. In fact, the United States provided more aid for France's operations in Indochina than the United States provided for the economic recovery of metropolitan France through the Marshall Plan. Um, and I document that with evidence in the book, because it's somehow, I think, is a really uh, hard-to-believe statistic. But in terms of Fall's article, Will South Vietnam Be Next?, he provided example after example that indicated how the U.S. supplied goods that were simply not useful and delivered through a pro this program of counterpart funding, which I mentioned. You know, for example, he pointed out how to, quote, um, the United States had allocated 800,000 U.S. dollars for tractors and industrial vehicles, but then allocated 7 million U.S. dollars, which were spent on private cars and $5.5 million on tires and tubes for those cars. Uh, he pointed out also, for example, how the agri you know, Vietnam imported $2 million worth of fertilizer, but then imported $6.5 U.S. dollars worth of cigarette and tobacco. Um, ultimately, uh, this was the, the real issue he was trying to get at, you know, instead of importing hi-fi radio systems and helping develop scooter factories, 
you know, the United States should have been helping to really focus on aid that was targeted for what Vietnamese farmers really needed. And this was to help them develop um, exportable rice quantities, you know, that would have helped sustain Vietnam in a realistic way. So that immediately answers my next question, which was about this idea where his one of his biggest criticisms was that the U.S. didn't support rice production. Um, and that really came through that it wasn't about why didn't the U.S. provide aid? It was about the type of aid. And I think something that um, readers will really appreciate, particularly thinking about applications to more current conflicts, is this idea that specificity matters. Um, and certainly in my own research on civil wars, um, my entire PhD is about the importance of specificity in treaty terms in my case. Um, but it's really helpful to see you illustrate in the book, but also Fall so clearly illustrating in his own writing that these details weren't things that he was content to just sort of let leaders off the hook about. Um, it wasn't, he clearly seemed to have a perspective that this level of detail was important enough that the general public should be made aware, um, which I think was a quite an interesting perspective that it seems like he continued throughout the rest of his career. Um, so I wanted to ask you particularly about the Vietnam reader. Um, what was it? How did he get involved? And how much of a turning point do you think it was in his career? Yeah, you know, the, the Vietnam Reader, um, for the for the listener, was first published in 1965. And uh, this was a really another kind of critical point in his life because, you know, he had spent all his time in Vietnam going into the specifics of, say, rice production and how important that was. You know, whereas for the typical American um, yeah, their interface with the Vietnamese or with other countries was really typically often through the military. But uh, Fall's work on editing the Vietnam Reader really marked a consolidation of multiple factors in early 1965. And it, I think it really positioned him to be probably what I would consider probably a socially conservative but outspoken critic of a war in, of which he knew more about than any politician, military officer or journalist in the United States. You know, and these factors I just mentioned deserve a couple of words. First, Fall was a professor of international relations at Howard University in Washington, D.C., so he had a front row on the, on the um, civil rights era. In fact, one of his students at Howard University was Stoke Carmichael, who formed the non Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee with John Lewis, who later famously became a senator from Georgia. You know, at this time in late 1964, Fall also had been meeting with Senator J. William Fulbright, and he helped Fulbright understand that opening relations with the People's Republic of China would help in negotiating an end to the Vietnam War. Now, one of my book's sub-arguments is that Fall played a crucial role in the effort to develop rapprochement with China at least several years before Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon achieved it in the 70s. You know, and finally, Fall's co-editor of the Vietnam Reader was a, a gentleman named Marcus Raskin. And Raskin was a founder of the Institute for Pol Policy Studies, which remains today one of the most progressive liberal think tanks in the United States. Uh, Raskin's son, incidentally, is Jamie Raskin, who's a senator from Maryland and was one of the key leaders and is one of the key leaders in the January 6th committee investigating the coup in Washington, D.C. from last year. But ultimately, Vietnam Reader was important because it was a key document that students across the United States used during the teach-ins in Vietnam throughout 1965. It was a key source of information for that generation. Um, it's interesting to note that the Reader itself is remarkably nonpartisan and includes arguments as to why the United States should be in Vietnam, but also why it should, should have extricated itself from that war. You know, in Fall's eyes, um, ultimately, though, I think, is, as I mentioned, he had that um, 
idea that you know the United States was faced with a, a bad choice between unattainable victory and unacceptable defeat, but that um, you know it should try to negotiate its way through. And this is one thing that maybe he wasn't entirely correct, um, but at the same point, you know, it, it wasn't helpful for the war to continue on for almost ten years after um, he had already been saying that look, we need to find a way out of this. So. Yeah, so I think that that was a really interesting aspect to it, um, that he, again, this public intellectual side of his career, um, that doesn't seem to have always gone over so well, despite the fact that he did have some key connections. Um, I'm sure other readers will also enjoy, as I did, uh, the idea that he was one of the initial Fulbright scholars to the United States, and then later on becomes an advisor to Senator Fulbright himself. Um, That seemed like a great full circle moment. Definitely. Um, yeah. And so what what do you think we can take from this? You said it right up at the beginning, and I think it does come through clearly in the book, is that this isn't just a biography. This isn't just history. There are some really clear, practical things um, that people today, everyday people, readers who don't study Vietnam, like myself, um, but also policymakers and leaders today, what do you want them in an ideal world to take from this book? Uh, yes, um, well, much. Um, and I think it's important to point out here that, you know, Fall died at the age of 40 in February 1967. He was actually out in Vietnam with the Marine Corps in Tuatian province, north of Way, and he um, tripped a landmine and was killed along with another Marine Corps gunnery sergeant. And so he died about six months prior to his what would have been his 41st birthday. So his amount of output was prolific. And, um, you know, he, he encapsulated so much. And if I think he, if he had lived, I think he would have just become more and more of an outspoken critic of the war. But in the epilogue of the book, I really discuss and try to go into the details of what I think current leaders, for example, should try to gain from their study of fall. And one of the most central things I would like for current leaders to take is a better and more comprehensive comprehensive understanding of what is now often referred to as gray zone or hybrid warfare, or in Russia, for example, active measures, which is a combination of information warfare, subversion, political warfare, and other means. The U.S. experience of these forms of warfare have a really powerful historic basis in defeat in Vietnam, and this was um, because of the power of Vietnamese revolutionary warfare that turned out to be far more powerful than what U.S. military could deploy from its arsenal, for example. You know, there's positive movements out there that try to help support this effort to inform people about modern warfare. For example, the Modern War Initiative at West Point in the United States um, is one example. But this kind of education information, I think, should be promoted far more widely and delivered in more effective ways to the military services and political leaders. You know, my goal is that leaders and others who have not heard of Bernard Fall and who are listening to this podcast will, of course, hopefully to be read my book, but also more importantly, that they'll pick up a copy of Bernard Fall's Street Without Joy and learn for themselves how valuable a resource false scholarship is for understanding warfare today. I think that really does come through. Um, And certainly in my own study of insurgency and counterinsurgency, um, I had come across his name, but not as much as it after reading your book, I think I maybe should have. Um, So I definitely would recommend to readers to learn more about him, ideally through your book, as it is, as you said, the one big study on it. And it does a very clear-eyed job of linking the history to things that audiences today may find relevant. Um, So this is perhaps a mean question to ask, given 
that your book has only recently come out. And as I said at the beginning, is coming out in the US on April 1st. Um, But what are you working on now or next? You know, I've I've got a few book reviews and review essays that um, I've been completing. Uh, There were certainly, as as a lot of people who have worked on big projects, there's always those issues of all those different smaller projects that were potentially offshoots you wanted to include in the book that um, would make it too long. So um, I have a couple of things like that, though, that are, are related. For example, one is an article on Francois Souli, who is a fellow French journalist and friend of Bernard Fall, and um, an individual I found to be a remarkably important figure, um, similar to Fall in a way, but with a different background. And Suli was an outspoken critic of No Dim Ziam in the Republic of Vietnam in the early 1960s. So I've got an article on Suli that will be published in the Journal of American East Asian Relations later this year. Um, after a little bit of a break, I think, later this spring, I'm planning to turn my, my attention to a long-term project that I envision, um, which I hope will become my second book. And it's called Corresponding Conflicts, A Comparative History of the Korean War and the First Indochina War. And so that's a project that I'm dedicating more and more time over um, the later part of this year and and for the next few years ahead. Oh, that sounds interesting. Could you tell us a little bit about what it's going to look at? Uh, Yeah, well, as the title mentioned, um, the Korean War and the First Indochina War, the often known as the French Indochina War, really occurred at about the same time um, in that early Cold War period, 1950 to 1954. Um, The French Indochina War really began in 1946 and ended in 1954. But I'm looking at how the United States responded to, for example, um, communist onslaught in Korea and how they gauged what was happening there with what they could do to supply the French in Indochina. Um, so I'm, I'm really kind of going back and forth between examining how the United States responded to those two different conflicts in different ways and how they basically adjusted their aid and military aid uh, to the French as, uh, as events, for example, in Korea unfolded. And so um, there's not a comparative study of the Korean and First Indochina War that exists. I mean, people like Robert Jervis and uh, Chen Jian and a number of other scholars have looked at each of the wars, uh, but I'm trying to look at a way of examining them um, and how they literally corresponded, because figuratively in time, but also uh, literally in the way that they um, unfolded. So that's kind of the plan. That sounds really interesting. I think um, one of the aspects of your your current book that was, again, I hadn't really thought as much about um, when we think about the Vietnam War and that sort of thing was, especially from Fall's point of view, being a French citizen, but being in America for such a long time, the sort of interaction and overlap between the French military efforts in Vietnam and then the US ones. And it was interesting to see in the book, um, and of course, I know we don't have time to get into everything, which is why listeners should read the book, Um, but it was really interesting to kind of see these elements of overlap um, and how it's not really as clear cut as this was the war the French were involved in, and then this is the one the Americans were. Um, So it sounds like another great book project, um, and hopefully we can have you back on when that book is finished and published. Um, So just to wrap up for our listeners... A uh, reminder that the book is called A Number One Realist, Bernard Fall and Vietnam- Vietnamese Revolutionary Warfare, published by Hearst. Um, it's already out in the UK and Europe, so we are the lucky ones. And it comes out for the Americans in um, April 1st. Um, and it's both a biography of, turns out, a really important scholar that many of us maybe are less familiar with. Um, but also understanding the intellectual uh, some of the intellectual history aspects 
of um, the French and US in Vietnam, the Vietnamese War, um, and hopefully gives, in fact, I think at least for me, it definitely does give some useful insight and guidance into some of the similarly tricky wars that we seem to be dealing with today. So thank you very much for uh, writing the book and sharing the book and your time with the network, Dr. Moyer. Miranda, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it being able to speak with you.